Welcome to the New Grace Sermon Podcast. Our church exists so people experience new life in Christ. We invite you to connect with us on social media at newgrace.cc on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about us or to support this ministry financially, visit us at newgrace.cc. Romans chapter 12. How are we doing on time? Well, we got to hurry. Romans 12. Look at verse number three. Paul has spent the first, uh, I'd say, eight chapters helping people understand what they have in Christ as believers, and now he is spending he is spending the latter part of the book equipping them with that knowledge. He wants them to do something. I want you to say, "Do something with me." Say it with me. Do something. Come on, every every everybody, say it with me. Do something. That's what Paul's at right now. He wants you to do something with all this. And he says in Romans chapter 3 and verse, Romans 12, verse number 3, for I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you. Okay, now he's talking to everybody in the church. Nobody's exempt from what he's saying right here. Check this out. I, I like this start. This helps me. I need this right here. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think so soberly. According as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. It's almost like God sitting at a table with a card deck, and he's, he's got cards of faith, and he's just he's, he's dealing them out. God dealt to every man a measure of faith. He, he's got something for everybody, it sounds like. For as we have many members in one body. Okay, here's the analogy. He's now, remember, Christ in the church... Church is not property, church is people, right? Now, the analogy, it's, there's three analogies that he uses. There's the building. He talks about the people like a building. He talks about the people like a bride, but then he also talks about the people like a body. This is the analogy to put in the head of these Greek people. He says, we are many members or parts, faculties, many different parts of the body. And we're one body, and all members have not the same office. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of our faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. I want to preach on this thought, and I want to pose it and frame it up with a question. What do you bring into the table? I want you to ask yourself that. What am I bringing to the table? Because I've got a seat at this table called the church. And the question now is, God wants to know as he deals out the cards of faith and the cards of grace, what are you going to bring to the table? I was so fortunate that when I trusted Christ at the age of 18, there was a young man who was about three years older than me that was just on fire for God. He was a young preacher. He was into his Bible. He had a prayer life. He was very disciplined. And he took it upon himself to hit a tennis ball in my court and said, hey, I'll disciple you. I didn't even know what that meant. He had to break it down. He said, I will teach you how to be the Christian you're supposed to be. I see that you're hungry. I see that you're serious. And he hit a ball into my court. And he was waiting to see if I was going to hit it back. And I hit it back. I took him up on it. His name was Jeremy. Jeremy now pastors in Auburn, Georgia. And Jeremy was a huge part of my 
beginning stages of Christianity. Jeremy infused a mindset in me that said, do something. In fact, he harped on me. I'm just joker. This joker stayed on me about being serious with my Christianity. And there's, there's actually things that come flying out of my mouth that were put into my head 22 years ago when I became a Christian and Jeremy began to instill and infuse some things into my life through discipleship. Jeremy would always tell me, you're supposed to do something. You're supposed to do something. See, I went to church once a week. Y'all remember back when church had Sunday morning? No, I take that back. They had Sunday school. Sunday morning, quiet practice at 445. Sunday evening church at six o'clock. They had church on Wednesday night. And, and he said, he said, you're not, you're, not, you're not doing enough if you're coming once a week. I'm like, what the heck, man? That's all we've ever done. My parents, when we went to church, I mean, they didn't even have Sunday night. I can't help it this church has Sunday night. He said, if you're serious about God, you're gonna go after every opportunity God gives you to grow and get to know him. Do something. So I started going three times a week. Then he got on me for sleeping in on Sunday mornings and not going to Sunday school. He said, you've got no excuse. You can get up and make it to work in time. You can get up and make it to uh, uh, school in time. You can get up and make it to the ball field in time when y'all are having a Saturday tournament. He said, that don't stop you. Get to church. Yes, sir. All right, absolutely. All right. So I started going to church more. We'd be sitting in church. Preacher would say, take your Bibles. Jeremy pull out his Bible. He'd look at me and go, where's your Bible? Uh, it's at the house. Bring your Bible. We didn't have screens. We had red back hymnals, and everybody had to bring their Bible, or you look off your neighbor, or you act like you got it memorized. <laughs> he said, you don't know this book. Bring your own. I started bringing my Bible. Then he said, you got to do something. I was like, I'm coming to church. He said, that ain't what I'm talking about. That's reasonable service. That's base level stuff. He said, you need to be involved. You don't do nothing. You just show up, get excited, clap, go to the altar and pray, but you don't do nothing. Like, what, what is the church getting from you? He said, God did not put in you or that Bible a mentality of what can I get from the church? It's supposed to be what can the church get from you? And you don't do nothing. I'm like, golly, man, I just got saved. He's like, Exactly. There's, and I said this at 9.30 in our pre-service gathering. Jeremy used to say, there is no such thing as an uncommitted Christian. An uncommitted Christian is an oxymoron. A Christian, by definition, is committed because you're willing to die with Christ. And if you're not willing to die with Christ, I dare to say you probably won't live for him. And Jeremy instilled this in me, along with that church, instilled this kind of stuff in me. And, and I remember him like, hey, you need to do something else. So I joined the choir. I couldn't sing. I couldn't sing, but I, but I wanted to worship and I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a praiser. I wanted to be somebody who, who, who added to the atmosphere. So I joined the choir and I, I stood up there with Jeremy and sang. And then I, I started trying to learn how to sing. I started learning how to actually sing the bass part. I didn't have the ear for it, but I wanted to sing really, really bad. And we had a little quartet. It was horrible, but we had a quartet and it was fun and all that stuff. And it grew me. And I'd go up to the upper room on Sunday afternoons before the six o'clock service and pray with Jeremy and pray with Matt and Jamie and all these guys up there that were young and on fire and I wanted what they had and I'd go up there and we'd pray and then, and then they said you need to do something else and I'd go and we did this thing called door knocking and soul winning oh my god I have so many stories I could just tell you need to do something you need to do something there's more in you there's more in you we gotta get it I'm like golly alright and he was he, God used him like a claw machine to pull all the prizes out Stuff I didn't even know was in me. And he always stressed, you need to bring something to the table. It wasn't Jeremy's opinion. Come to find out, it wasn't just the way he was. 
It was the way this was. He was actually just delivering the mail and telling me, you need to be bringing something to the table that you're sitting at. I think, I think if Jeremy was here, we could have him preach this, but he's not. He's pastoring right now, so I'll preach it. Everybody in this room kind of could benefit from this lesson. In fact, Jeremy didn't come up with it. God wrote what, uh, or God wrote through Paul what he wanted us to hear. And everything Paul wrote always points back to the activity that the Christian is supposed to have in, in concerns of the church. And Romans 12, along with other passages, really calls you and I to look at, like, what, what are we bringing to the table? And I want to say this very quickly. Every Christian in this room, you can personally be used by God. You can be used by God. And you, you can do that by really applying and adhering the following principles that Paul outlines right here. Look, look at this quickly. Let me, can I teach this morning? Can I, can I just teach to you real quick? Verse five, he said, so we being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of, a number, one of another. Write this down real quickly if you're taking notes. As a believer, you have a role to play in God's church. Let me get that on the table real quickly. You have a role to play in the church. Every person matters to the church. Every person is a part of the body of Christ. That means you matter to God, and that means you matter to the people of the church. And you have to understand this, that the moment you were born again, God already destined a role for you in his church. Oh my God, this room is filled this morning. And my question in my mind is how many believers in this room understand the reality that you were meant to play a part in the body? Here's the deal. Whether or not you realize it, you're already a part. It was a spiritual thing that happened when you got saved. God made you a part of the body. You might be a toe. You might be a toenail. You may be a wrist. You may be an elbow. You may be a butt cheek. <laughs> like you, you listen to me. You have a role in the church. And I, I wrote this down, man. I, I felt like God put this in my spirit to, to, to convey to you very quickly. But I do not believe God will let you reach a level of spiritual satisfaction if you're an inactive part. I don't think that's fulfilling. Like having a finger that doesn't point or a foot that doesn't stand or a knee that doesn't bend, or a shoulder blade that doesn't itch? Are you hearing me? Like, if you're inactive, think about it. If you have an inactive member on your body that doesn't work, it doesn't serve much of a purpose. So, so what he's trying to help us understand here is that every single person has a role to play in the church. And here's where I'm concerned in the 21st century. A lot of people are on the role, but they don't have a role. They have a seat, but there's no service. A lot of people are a member with no ministry. And I wrote this down. You probably need to graduate to the point where you choose action over attendance. Listen to me, there is no such thing in the Bible that God checks a, a list or a box when you come to church on Sunday morning. That doesn't exist, that's not biblical. Uh, the people in the New Testament church and people overseas in Christianity right now, 
uh, in the East would laugh their heads off at us and our Americanized Christianity. It doesn't exist. And here's what I'm telling you. The whole idea of going to church once a week and checking a box is something that somebody made up. Did you know that? It, it's made up. You could not do this and still be the church. Now, they gathered. They did. They gathered together and worshiped and somebody brought a word. But that wasn't all they did. And a lot of people don't realize that because what, what do you see in the South? Everybody's got a little sign that says Sunday morning service. And that's all they convey because that's all people want to do. Why, do, why is that all churches do? Because most people in the South or America don't want to do anything else. Why is that? Because we want Jesus to be a side chick. Every, look, you rendezvous with God every Sunday. We treat him. God, I can't even say, I'm, I'm, I can't even say it. I'm, I'm just telling you like it is. Like, we don't even, but, but it's, not, it's not that we're vindictive against God or we want to be purposely rebellious. We don't know because nobody ever told us that nobody told us that you are as important as me. Y'all think I'm more important than you because I'm up here and I'm holding a microphone and I went to Bible college and I know how to preach. You're telling, that's you saying, God, you put more favor on his life than you did mine. That ain't biblical. He's more saved than me. What? I'm no more forgiven than you are. I'm no more qualified than you are. I'm no more gifted. Stay with me, baby birds. I'm no more gifted than you are. Look at this, look at this right here. Watch this. He says, having then gifts in verse six. So he's writing to an audience and he says, you're all members one of another and you all have a role to play. You're all parts of the body and you matter to God and you matter to the church. And then he says this, having then gifts. Do you know how that reads? You're a part of the church and you currently already have a gift. See, religion will tell, tell you that you have to work to get a gift or you have to do something with behavior to earn a gift. Question, question, did you do anything to earn the gift of salvation? Did you do anything to work your salvation? No, it was a gift. That's the whole point. It's a gift. It's free. It didn't cost you anything. It cost God everything. He emptied out heaven's bank account to save your soul when he gave Jesus for the transaction of your sin and your soul. But the gift of salvation is not the only gift God gave you. He gave you the gift of his spirit. And with the spirit, he gave you spiritual gifts. Oh my God, some of us have never heard this. We've never heard this. Or the only context you've ever heard about spiritual gifts is someone acting weird and flopping around on the floor like a fish. Let, 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 me, let me help you with something. You have right now exactly what you're supposed to have. You have right now been endowed. I'm not talking about next week. Come on, right now. God, this gets me. I'm more, see, this is weird. I'm more excited for you than you are for yourself. You're like, hmm, the God of heaven gave me a gift. Hmm. And I'm up here like, you got a gift. 
I'm like that weird aunt who gets excited about you opening a present. You understand this? This is, listen, this is not as much a gift to you as it is a gift through you. Did you hear me? It is a gift to you, but the primary objective is that it's a gift through you. In other words, the gift ain't about you and the gift ain't for you. God gave you the gift so you could be the channel, the river in which it flows and it comes to the body of Christ. Now, let me say this very quickly to all my scholars and future commentators. Paul is talking in Romans 12 about ministry gifts, not manifestation gifts. I don't have time to teach this. If you want to learn more about it, come to grow. But God is, God is outlining ministry gifts, like things that he gave you so that you could be a minister to the church. So this is what Paul is saying. You have a gift, meaning you're supposed to do something with what God gave you. I wrote this down. It is not God's will for a gift to remain unopened and unused. Your accountability to God began the moment you were born again. The moment you became a Christian, God turned on the accountability. And you immediately became responsible to him for what you do with what you have. Y'all have heard the phrase, to whom much is given, much is required. But have you ever actually traced its truth through what Jesus said? I'll take you there. You want to read the Bible with me real quick? Luke chapter 12, verse 42. And the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward? whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household. In other words, on that great day of judgment, who's the person that God is going to say, hey, you did a good job with what I gave you. It wasn't yours, it was mine. I let you manage it. You were a steward of it and you were faithful with it and you were wise with it. Now I'm going to make you a ruler over my household. This foreshadows what's going to happen in the millennial reign of Christ, which is a thousand years after Jesus comes back. He's going to set up a thousand year kingdom in the land of Jesus. Jerusalem as the capital, Israel as the territory. And and listen, when I come back with Jesus, I ain't coming back to Georgia. He ain't sticking me over here in the United States. I'm going to be so faithful and so wise with what he gave me that I'm going to be one of those he lets stay in the Middle East with him. I hope I get to sweep the floors in Jerusalem. I hope he lets me come back and stay there. Maybe, maybe, there's actually, maybe there's actually not that many people that are saved. And Jesus did say, few there be that find it, many that don't. So maybe, maybe the Middle East is going to be enough room. I mean, if there's 7 billion Christians in the end times, then yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to come back to the U.S. Or I mean, heck, Russia's got plenty of land, you know. I mean, there's a lot of land, but... The idea is that when you come back, Jesus says, what you did in that life determines what you have in this one. It's like the dude that got to heaven. He read that part in John 14, in my father's house are many mansions. And he gets up there and there's a little lean-to shack. He's like, what the heck is this? God's like, well, we were building with whatever y'all sent us. That's what you gave me to work with, so that's what we made you. I know, some of y'all are going to get to heaven, you're going to downsize. And some of you are going to get to heaven, you're going to be like, oh my God, there's a lot of square footage in this place. 
See, this is interesting. He says, who's going to be a wise and faithful steward? Look at this, verse 43. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But look at this. If the guy is not doing anything with what he had, but he does the opposite. Look at this. If that servant say in his heart, well, my Lord delayeth his coming, and, 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 and he begins to beat the men's servants and maidens to eat and drink and be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he's not aware, and will cut him in asunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant, check this out, look at this, this is scary. Jesus, there's a shock value here, all right? There's a shock value Jesus wants the audience to feel. That servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, look at this, neither did according to his will, this is not a literal, it's figurative here, shall be beaten with many stripes, but he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. Look, here it is. For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required. See, stewardship is directly related to lordship. Jesus is my Lord, meaning he rules over me in my life. I'm his servant, okay? So if, if when you become a Christian and you make Jesus Lord, here is the question. Is he Lord over your salvation or is he Lord over your schedule? Is he Lord of your salvation or is he Lord over your bank account? Is he Lord of your salvation or is he Lord over who you marry? Is he Lord over how you live? Is he, you see what I'm saying? Or was he just your go to heaven ticket? That's the imagery that he's trying to paint here. He says in verse four, look at this, for as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office. Verse six, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. I'm gonna read verse six again. Paul says, having then gifts differing. We're not all supposed to be the same. We're not all bringing the same thing to the table. Having then gifts according to the grace that is given to us. Write this down if you're taking notes. You are uniquely gifted. Listen to me. You are uniquely gifted. I wrote this down. Your upbringing, your education, your past experiences, your personality, your abilities, and your spiritual passions are the paper that wraps the gift. Everything that God has used to shape you as an individual is a part of the packaging that points to why you are on this planet and what you are supposed to do as a member of the church. There's three things that you need to do. This sounds a whole lot like the GROW course I'm gonna teach. There's three things you need to do understanding how you are uniquely gifted. You need to discover, you need to develop, and then you need to demonstrate. I'm gonna say that again because I got a small amount of people right now. See, I'm narrowing this thing down. I'm filtering right now because there's some people that have been tuned out because you think this doesn't apply to you because you think you'll never reach a level to where you could actually do this. But I got some of you right now on the hook. So listen, you discover, once you discover it, you develop it. Once you develop it, you begin to demonstrate it. So let me say something about discovering how you are uniquely gifted in God's church. One, be patient, it's gonna take time. 
It's gonna take you time to figure out what God gave you to work with. And then you need to understand that, that there are two things that will point to this gift that God gave you and what you bring to the table. Your passion and desire is an inclination of what God put in you. But so is opportunity. See, when God helps confirm to you why you're gifted, people will begin to also see it. You won't just think it. I know some people that think their gift is this particular thing, but nobody else can tell. If nobody else can tell, is that really what you're supposed to be doing? When God gives you to do something and he blesses what you are doing, people will notice that that's the thing God uses. When I got to Bible college, I was very torn because all of my friends, I was the one they sent out to preach. I got the most invitations to go preach in Bible college out of my whole class. But some of my other friends could really sing. I mean, really, really throw down singing. And I wanted to sing so bad. My ministry, my primary ministry gift out of that list is exhortation, which means building up. And you'll have a little bit of each one, but you have a primary office or primary role that you facilitate. Mine is exhortation. It's never been the gift of giving, not that I'm not generous, but God hasn't blessed me with tons of financial wealth to where I can be a river of channeling that in the church. I don't have that. God, God uh, I have some teaching ability, but that's not my primary drive. I have the ability of leadership, but that's not my primary focus. I have the ability of prophecy, which is being able to point the finger, reprove and rebuke and tell some absolute truth out of God's word. That's not my primary drive. My primary drive is taking that word right there and building you up to where you walk out with more encouragement about who you are in Jesus. That is my, I want to encourage, I want to build up people. That's my primary gift. But I could not discover that as long as I was torn between singing and preaching. And I ended up in a quartet. I wanted so bad to be able to sing. Now, I sang bass. I have torn the frame out of my vocal cords to where I cannot sing with the same range that I used to sing. But honey, I, I used to be able to sing some bass. I'm talking, bless God, Bible, Barry White in the house. But I'm gonna tell you something. Nobody ever benefited from it when I did it. Nobody cared. Nobody really noticed it. I was always forcing myself into the limelight of opportunity because I wanted so bad to sing. And watch this. I never discovered what my true functionality was as long as there was a tug of war and turmoil going on inside. Am I supposed to preach? Am I supposed to sing? Well, I know I'm supposed to preach, but I also want to sing. And as long as I was stuck like that, God didn't let me go into what I was supposed to go into. Like I would, I would, I remember... At Bible college, I mean, the church was 2,000 people. It was a big church, big old worship, big old choir. There was a lot of special groups that sang. And I, I ended up positioning myself to where I could sing in a group. And there was, listen to me, I could sing and there was talent, but there was no touch. There was ability, but there was no anointing on it. And I would sing and it was just like, in the room, it was just like, okay, cool, he's singing. But when I preached... It was like God just stepped in. 
And people come up and say, hey, man, you, you blessed me. Hey, you encouraged me. Hey, man, God showed up today when you preached. Now, I recognize now that wasn't me. You ever done something for God and wanted to take the credit for it? You ever swatted a fly before? That's about what happens. When you start absorbing the credit, God says, uh-uh. And, and God, God began to humble me at an early age, but I had this desire to sing. And as long as I was trying to force that as my gift, I missed out on what God was actually wanting to do. And here's the crazy thing. I actually got better at it when I stopped worrying about it. I got better at it when I stopped trying. Pastor Derek, why don't you sing now? Because it would be a distraction of my primary gift. And you'd be like, oh, look, Pastor Derek's singing. Yippee. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should. I tried my hand at different things, but I did, I, I was able, listen, let me tell you something. I told you I was going to teach this morning. I told you I was going to teach. I started recognizing what God was, what was fruitful based on feedback. If you really want to know if something's anointed or blessed, go ask somebody who will tell you the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, is this, is, is, when, I, when, when I do this for God, what's, what's the feedback? Is it anointed? Is it blessed? Does it encourage people? Or, or am I just trying to hog the spotlight? Or am I at a place? Once you discover it, you develop it. And you start using it. And you start demonstrating it. But, but you'll never discover it until you're around people and environments that extract it from you. So here's the thought. Here's a thought. What are you going to do now knowing that you are uniquely gifted to do something in God's church? How are you going to live the rest of your life knowing that without doing something about it? Oh, God, you're at a crossroads. I know I done messed you up. I just peed in your cornflakes. I know. But now you got to do something. Now you got to do something. Like I just, now you're accountable to who much is given, much is required. You didn't have that knowledge when you got here. Now you do. What are you going to do now? You're just as gifted as everybody else in this room. You may not be, I didn't say you were as experienced. I didn't say you were as educated. I didn't say you were as wealthy. I didn't say you were as talented. I said you're as gifted from God as a Christian as everybody else. What are you going to do now? It's interesting. Let me read this story and, uh, Come on, come on, Pastor JJ. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to be done. Come on. Look at verse three. Put verse three up there. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Look at this. But to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Write this down. Here's the last point. God doesn't want you to be the best. He just wants your best. Wow. This was so hard for me in my 20s. I wanted to be the best. I did. When it came to preaching or speaking, I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be the best for him, but I got caught up in wanting to be the best. And it took me a long time to realize God doesn't care if you're the best in the room. But he wants your best when he's in the room. God wants your best. You know, there is a, there is a stigma, a, a, a phrase that I cannot stand. 
in 21st century Christianity. And it is, don't be judgy. Let me, let me help you. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not going to soapbox. Listen to me. We don't think about how God views what we do with what we have. Remember the story where Jesus was hanging out at the temple and he was watching all the wealthy people line up in the offering boxes and put in lots of money? And you know what? I got it right here. Go, go to that widow's mite uh, story. What does he say? Is it uh, Mark 12? Yeah. Jesus sat over against the treasury. So uh, Jesus, is, Jesus is propped up over here at the little offering box, right? They had offering boxes at the temple. Jesus is propped up over here at the offering box like this. And uh, look at this. Look what it says. Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld. That's a King James word for watched, looked. Looked. Look at this word. How the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much. Verse 42. Check this out. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. Do you want to know what that would be in our economy? A dollar. She threw in a dollar, meaning she had, she had two 50-cent pieces. She had two 50-cent pieces. She threw in the two mites, which make a farthing. Look at verse 43. Look what it says. And he called unto him his disciples. So he's leaning over there at the offering box and goes, hey guys, come here, come here, come here, come here. Truly, truly I say to you that this poor widow just put in more than all of those which cast into the treasury. Hold on now. Jesus is being judgy. He's being judgy. He's leaning up against the thing, watching everybody put the money in. And he doesn't say that she put in more than any of those guys. She said, he said she put in more than all of them put together. And what is he talking about? A dollar ain't worth more than all that money them rich people were dropping in that box. It, had, it didn't have anything to do with how much they gave. It had to do with how they gave. Now, the context is actually not about money. The context involves money. The context is not about money. The context is about your best. So here's somebody coming in and giving what appears to be a lot. Watch this. They're giving to God what appears to be a lot. When in reality, they have so much more that they could have gave. But they gave enough to make everybody think they were giving a lot. But Jesus sitting there. And he's judging. And he knows what every one of them jokers make. And he knows that those guys are putting on a show. Remember the context? He was talking about people putting on a show with their gifts and their resources. Praying out, praying in the streets so everybody can hear you. Making a big deal about, all right, I'm giving now. I'm going to give this big fat check. I'm going to go ahead and give. Like That's the kind of stuff Jesus was talking about. And he's watching these people come and give. And he goes, that girl right there. That poor widow who does not have the financial support system of a husband or a family could have gave one mite and kept the other to live off of. She gave it all. There is no doubt this girl gave her best. 
there is a structure of measurement that I believe people are going to be held accountable for on judgment day. You're going to be held accountable for whether you gave barely, you gave baseline, or you gave your best. A lot of people give barely. They, they just do just enough to seemingly make God be quiet. Then there's people that do baseline. They look at what everybody else is, is doing and say, all right, let's do, it. let's do that too so we look like we're also taking this serious. And then there's people that have this reckless abandonment for serving God where they absolutely give their best and they don't care what it costs them. Jesus called for the best. And there comes a day. Do we have that judgment day verse on there? Jessica, I can't remember what I put on there. Can we go to that verse about judgment day? All right, so when Paul is writing a New Testament letter and he uses the word we, who is he talking to? Is he talking to, right here, is he talking to people who do not believe? No, he is talking strictly to believers. So this helps us right here formulate that there are two judgments. There's two. One for believers, one for unbelievers. And for the believer's judgment, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive, look at this, the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. He is not talking about your sin. Your judgment for sin happened on the cross. And when you believed in Christ, God paid the penalty of your judgment right then and there. This has to do with what did you do with what I gave you? Did, did you do anything good with it or did you do something bad with it? Were you wasteful or did you think I was worthy? What did you do with what I gave you? So here's the sobering thought. There is gonna come a day where we actually stand in front of him and he says, all right, this is what I gave you. What did you do with it? And he's not going to hold you to the standard of judgment he holds me or vice versa. It's going to be, this is what I gave you. What did you do with it? This is one of the most sobering things that was pictured in my mind when I became a Christian and I began to live my life for this very day. I was convinced this was going to happen. I am convinced still it's going to happen. And I have to live my life taking all the things God gave me and giving it my best. So here's my question. Have you been robbing God of your best? Are you giving barely? Are you giving baseline? Or are you giving best? What, what, if we, what if we took responsibility for this truth today and we came down to this altar and we said, God, I am sorry that I've been letting excuses or laziness or, or whatever keep me from actually giving my best. And today I'm coming down here to dedicate and make a commitment that from this moment on, you're going to get my best. I understand that I am gifted. I have a role to play in your church. I have something to offer. And look, it's my job to figure out what that is. And I want to do something with it. For some of us, it's going to be coming down here and going, God, I am so sorry that I have convinced myself that just attending church was what Christianity was about. For some of us, it's going to be, Lord, I'm sorry that I've been negotiating with you. I'm going to slide all of my gifts to the end of the table and give them to you because you gave your best for me. If you gave your best for me, I can give my best to you. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcatcher. New episodes are posted on Tuesdays.